0: Y'all may have a seat. Joke's on you. You thought you were getting Bobby, but you will. Just bear with me. We're going to be reading through uh, today's scripture, which is Exodus chapters 13 and 14. If you are using one of the blue Bibles next to you, those uh, chapters can be found on pages 32 and 33. And for continuity's sake, I'll be reading out of the NIV, so don't panic. All right, here we go. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing wheat. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jezebites, the land he swore to to your ancestors to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe the ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your children, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you, like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised an oath to you and your ancestors, You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come, when your children ask you, What does this mean? say to them, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord, the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that, would have, though that was shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to, keep, to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar nor the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near, sorry, by Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all other chariots of Egypt, with offices over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi opposite baal as Pharaoh approached the Israelites the, as Pharaoh approached the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them they were terrified and cried out to the Lord they said to Moses was it because there was no gra- there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt didn't we say to you in Egypt leave us alone let us serve the Egyptians it would have been better for us to serve the egyptians than to die in the desert moses answered the people do not be afraid stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the lord and you will see the deliverance the lord will bring you today the egyptians see you today and will never see again the lord will fight for you you need only to be still then the lord said to moses why are you crying out to me tell the israelites to move on raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near all the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and and that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing forward. It and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea and on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. Would you pray with me? God, you are great. And you are greatly to be praised. And though... Today, we don't see these miraculous things like we just read. We don't see you doing these things in this way. We know that you are God, and we recognize this morning that you are all-powerful and that you are great. And I pray that as we reflect on that this morning, that we, with the same heart and with the same mind, as your people Israel did in this moment, that we would fear you, that we would worship you, that we would trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have seen over and over over the last couple of months, working through the book of Exodus, we have been reminded that Exodus is such a pivotal book in the landscape of Scripture, that all of the things that will come after this book, all of the things that we have the benefit of in hindsight, looking back over, the foundation for those things are laid here in the book of Exodus, not only historically, but also theologically. And because of the significance of Exodus to the story of Scripture, it's also become a favorite in pop culture as well, right? Like lots of art, books, film, etc. Like all of these things in our pop culture, there are numerous examples that point back to this story of Exodus. I grew up as a kid, every Easter weekend, uh, the old movie with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments, would come on, and that was like this big motion picture of the time. And they can cont- i mean, I saw it just a couple of months ago. They continue to show this on uh, on that weekend, this that that epic uh, movie. But my favorite is the Disney movie, The Prince of Egypt. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. It came out in 1998, so it was a little past my Disney-watching time uh, as a kid growing up. But now that I have kids of my own, I've had an opportunity to watch this movie uh, many, many times. And it's a great, great movie. Uh, I get to live some of my lost childhood through my kids these days, as a lot of you parents Uh, get to as well but this was a movie that was like I mean it was a big time it was a big deal this is when you look at the cast and the voices behind these characters it's kind of like a who's who list of of 90s Hollywood at that time um and I love the portrayal in this movie of Moses and and his the relationship that he had with his brother uh, Ramses, and and they portray Ramses, even though we don't know this for sure, as the pharaoh that Moses deals with here throughout the book of Exodus. Uh, I love that the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, that I believe Steve Martin uh, plays the voice of one of the. They're kind of crazy and weird and and funny. Um, the scene Means of Moses beginning to identify with his Israelite brothers and sisters are really powerful. They portray that in a really powerful way. And I like how the characters are actually drawn to look like people who are Egyptians, not a bunch of Europeans who are dressed in Egyptian clothes like a lot of the movies uh, that we see um, before that time. But what I find most interesting about the portrayal of this movie is how it portrays the scene that we just read and that we just listen to. When Moses and the Israelites come to this point, they've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt and they're moving and journeying to the promised land, the land that God has prepared for them. And in this movie, we see that they come to the Red Sea and they turn around and they see Pharaoh and his army closing in. And in the movie... The people get scared and they start to run. And then all of a sudden, this calm settles over them. And they all turn and they look to Moses with like these, this hopeful, this expectant gaze. Like, what is Moses going to do? How is he going to save us? And Moses doesn't say a word. But he takes this deep breath and he turns and he walks out into the water. He closes his eyes, and he takes this deep breath, and he hears the voice of God, which is Val Kilmer's voice, say, (laughs) with this staff, you shall do my wonders, and Moses lifts up this staff and plunges it into the water, and all of a sudden, the seas spread, and the people walk through in amazement. And I guess that's okay for a story, but the story that we actually just read and listened to is a way better story. It's a way better story because it's real, and it connects to how we would actually experience that moment as real human beings in that time and in that space. Because what we've learned so far in the book of Exodus is that this isn't a story about the Egyptians. It's not a story about Israel. It's not even a story about how heroic Moses is. That the book of Exodus is a story about God. It's a story about God being God in a very real and personal way. And so this morning, we are going to see together that God is still the main character in this story. Even though the people of Israel have been delivered out of slavery, out of Egypt, that God continues to be the primary figure. And what we're going to see this morning is this, that the God who delivers his people is the God who will go with his people and provide for his people. The God who delivered his people will go with his people and will provide for his people. And so what I want to do is I want to just touch on a few things in this story, draw out some of the significances of what we see here in this story, um, and then I want to make the connection to us. I want to make the connection. Where do we see this in our own lives? How do we experience this? Again, Exodus is a book that has massive theological implications in the way that we understand our relationship with God, the way that generations of God's people after this would come to understand God. This was foundational. This was foundational. I want to start in verse 17 of chapter 13. And what we see here is that God, after he delivers his people and leads them out of Egypt, that God could have taken his people on a shorter route to the promised land. There was a more direct route to the promised land. But as they would go on that route, there would be a good chance that they would face the Philistines, who would become an enemy of God's people in the future. And God knew that they were... That they would face the possibility of having to fight, having to fight these enemies of God. But notice here that God reroutes them along a different path, a longer, more circuitous path along the Red Sea, through the desert and along the Red Sea. Because God wasn't only protecting them from their enemies, He was protecting his people from themselves. Because look at what he says. He says, if they have to fight, what would they be tempted to do? To turn around and go back to Egypt. To go back to slavery. To go back to the life that God had just rescued them from and brought them out of. They might change their mind because of the fear. Because of the discouragement. Because of the hardship." Maybe the grass wasn't greener after all, but they wouldn't do that, would they? I mean, they had just seen God do a miraculous thing in bringing them out of 430 years of slavery. They would never go back, would they? Well, just wait. From the get-go here, God shows that he is with his people, that he didn't just bring them out and then say, okay, Now you're free. Do what you want. Go figure it out. Make a life for your own. They couldn't see God because no one can see God and live. But they knew that God's presence was with them because of the cloud. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God went ahead of them. God was guiding them. God was leaving them. He leading them. He would never leave them. He would never take a break. He would never get distracted with other more important things to do in the universe. God was there with his people, going with them. And later in this passage as we read, we see that the angel of the Lord was with them. The physical manifestation of God's presence with his people because God wanted his people to know that he was there. All they had to do was look up. All they had to do was look up. God was there. God was leading them. And as we move into Exodus chapter 14, we see God moving his people and directing his people, but strategically, From a human standpoint, what God was doing here was actually really foolish. Because he was leading millions of people with all of their possessions to the sea. Because if anything happened, if anything happened, and it was going to happen, as we read, where would they go? How would they escape? This is a crazy move. Anybody in their right mind who knew how to lead people in a strategic way would not lead them the way that God chose to lead them. With their backs to the sea, with no way to escape. God intended, though, for something to happen. And he tells Moses here that he is not done with Pharaoh. That he's not done with Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert with the seat of their back. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There it is again. The thing that we have seen over and over and over again up to this point. He will pursue them. But look at why God is doing this. I will gain glory. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians and the Israelites and the rest of the world will know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. Lest we forget all of Pharaoh's actions. All of the things that we've seen him do in response to what God is doing are in God's hands. Nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing throws God off balance and makes God revert to plan B. God is in control. God has this in his hands. And like the plagues before, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh will change his mind about letting the people of Israel go. And he will say, look, we made a mistake. Why did we let these people go? Why did we let them out of our country? And Pharaoh begins to see that the free labor that he had to build his power, to build his empire was gone. And he sees them wandering out in the desert, that God had put his people in a vulnerable vulnerable position, humanly speaking. A position that enticed Pharaoh as he looked at that, saw them wandering around in the desert with their backs to the water. It made him think that they were easy prey, humanly speaking, that they were still, after all, his people. Humanly speaking. Maybe Pharaoh thought that they would come back. Maybe Pharaoh thought that they would just go out and worship God. And then they would come back. But they didn't. And what we see here in verses 10 through 18 of chapter 14. Is that he goes after them. He goes after them. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? They cried out. But it wasn't a cry of desperation. It wasn't a cry of hope. It wasn't a cry of trust. That, God, we know you'll protect us. We know that you have our back. We know that you won't leave us. That you will continue to deliver us like you have brought us out of Egypt. No. It was a temper tantrum. It was a cry of distrust. It was a cry of rebellion. After all that they had witnessed God do in Egypt to free them, They cry out in accusation to God. Do you even know what you're doing? Why did you do what you did? Bringing us out of Egypt just to bring us out here. To let us die after all. It would have been better for us to stay back. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. To stay in Egypt and be slaves where at least we know we would be alive. But instead, we're out here in the desert, and we are going to die. See how they've already begun to rationalize their slavery? They've already begun to convince themselves, hey, maybe being slaves wasn't so bad. Maybe being slaves was actually a blessing in disguise. Because at least we're alive. At least we have each other. At least we have a house to live in. At least we have food to eat. I mean, the work is hard. And we didn't really like other people telling us what to do. But at least we were alive. Because now we are going to die. Jess mentioned this earlier. What is Moses' response? Be still. Now this is not a comforting Be still and know that God is God. This is a shut up. Be quiet. When you read this in the Hebrew, that is what it means. It is a be quiet. Stop talking. Get yourself in line. Because God is going to work. And God tells Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. And then in verse 17, I will gain glory again through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and all of his horsemen. Moses, God through Moses tells his people, be quiet and watch me be God. Be quiet and watch me work. Watch me get glory out of this situation. And in verses 19 through 29, we see that God does exactly that. That God shows his glory. That God shows his power. He pushes the waters back. He locks up the chariot wheels of the Egyptians, those chariots that were a symbol of their technological and military prowess, their power and their might. God locks those wheels up. He throws that mighty army into confusion so that all they could do is say to each other, the Lord must be fighting with them. The God of Israel, Yahweh, must be protecting and fighting on behalf of his people. And God brings those waters that he had parted for his people to walk through back together in one final judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. And verses 30 and 31 give us the conclusion of this part of the book of Exodus. Because what Moses says here is that the mighty hand of the Egyptians is no match for the mighty hand of the God of Israel. Egypt, who was the power of the world, who for generations after this would be looked back upon as innovators, technological geniuses, some of the architects of modern civilization. Moses wrote here in hindsight for generations of God's people to read that the most powerful nation on earth was no match for the power of your God. And that's how we close this section of the book of Exodus. God's power on display. Sometimes we can use this story I think, in a smaller way than what God intends it. We can say, man, I'm going through a tough time. Or I'm having a tough experience with this person. Or I'm suffering in this area of my life. So just like God parted the waters of the Red Sea and delivered his people, God's going to deliver me out of this situation. Now, can and does God deliver us out of those kind of situations in our lives? Absolutely, yes. But the story of this deliverance, of God leading his people out of Egypt, seemingly putting them in a precarious and vulnerable position, only to deliver them once again, is connected to a bigger story and a bigger story. Reality, And it gives us a paradigm for how to live our lives and how to understand our relationship to God. And it's the same thing that we see here, that because God has delivered us, he goes with us and will protect us. Let me break that down to you by going back to the beginning of chapter 13. The beginning of chapter 13 when we read in connection with what we saw last week, that as the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, that God gives them a couple of things that he says, I want you to do. And the first is they are to continue to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. They were were to continue year after year after year to mark this occasion like we saw last week That they were coming out of an old life and they were starting a new life. That they were to celebrate that year after year after year. But they were also to do something else. To consecrate, to set apart their firstborn sons. Because now that Israel had left Egypt, they had to get something straight. They were God. They were his possession. They were his people. He had brought death to the firstborn sons of Egypt so that his firstborn son, the people of Israel, could live. That lamb that they had killed, that blood that they had put above their doorframe, that was the substitute. And God commanded them to acknowledge that. That they had been given life through something else's death. It was to make it clear to them that they had been delivered from slavery. But delivered to God himself. That they were to set apart their sons. The firstborn of their sons. Every time a son was born, they were to consecrate that son to the Lord, to commit him to the Lord. And it doesn't tell us how here later we read in the book of Numbers that uh, one of the ways that they did that was monetarily. That they would pay and they would give to to, uh, the priests and to the service of worship to acknowledge that my son is a symbol of what God did for us as a people. That he brought us out of Egypt to himself to be his firstborn, to be his people, to be his possession. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Both of these acts that God commanded his people to do. Were again symbolic. Of their deliverance from slavery. And their deliverance to God. And understanding this gives shape to what we see God do at the Red Sea. It helps us understand why God acts the way that he acts. Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus... Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So that he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. If you log on to SomaIndy.com. The first thing that you will see on the front page is a phrase the gospel changes everything period the gospel changes everything the gospel of the kingdom that life with god under the rule of god is available to us right now the gospel of the cross that that life with god is available to us not because we earned it not because we came to God and deserved it, but because Jesus Christ was our substitute. He was the lamb who was slain for us so that we could have that life. And the gospel of grace tells us that that is offered to us freely. That God tells us we can't work for it and we don't have to work for it. There are no strings attached. That it is through his grace we have life with him. Not only everlasting life when we die, but life that starts right here, right now, in His presence, in His will, with His Spirit. And what we read here is that God, just like He delivered His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, that God has delivered us out of the slavery of sin and death, but He has delivered us to Himself, to a life of worship. Free from condemnation. Praise God. Glory to God. And that is why we say that the gospel changes everything. That's what our mission is as a church. That we exist as a church in this community, in this city, Because we believe that the gospel changes everything. That the gospel fundamentally changes our relationship to God. The gospel fundamentally changes what we believe to be true about ourselves. The gospel fundamentally changes our way of being in this world and being in relationship with each other. The gospel changes everything. That we are freed from the law of sin and death. And we are delivered to God to be his and to live life with him under his gracious and loving rule. God has delivered us. And because God has delivered us, he goes with us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies testifies with our spirit that we are not slaves, but God's children. God's children. Imagine the Israelites leaving Egypt. And they are pumped. You would be pumped too. 430 years of slavery. They had not known anything else but a life of subjugation, oppression, being taken advantage of. And God frees them from that. And they are leaving Egypt behind. Can you imagine them saying, this is awesome. Wait, where are we going again? What does this life look like again? What what is God doing again? It's over. We're free. But what now? It's reassuring. It's comforting to them that God doesn't bring them out of Egypt and say, go figure it out now. But that God's presence is with them. He is there. He is with them. He is out in front of them. He is leading them. He is guiding them to the place that he is taking them. Paul tells us here that those of us who are free from condemnation because of Jesus Christ are now being led by his spirit, that we have the presence of God with us. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes that God's spirit is our deposit. It's God's deposit his spirit, his presence, his deposit to us, his guarantee, his guarantee to us that what he is doing in us will not stop, that he will get us to where he is taking us, that his transformation of us will never ever end until we see him face to face. God will continue to do this But what we see here is that the reality of being a slave is fear. The reality of being a slave is fear. You're not in control of your life. Your life is in the hands of someone else. Someone else who's not looking out for your good. Someone else who is using you for their good. Someone who sees you as a commodity. And when your usefulness is done. You're done. Imagine living with that reality. There's no security. There's no safety. There's no peace. There's no reassurance. Only fear. But contrast that to the reality of being a special, loved child. That your life is in the hands of someone who desires your joy who wants you to experience happiness, who loves you unconditionally, who loves you even if you can't give anything back. What a difference that makes. What a different reality that is. And that means something to us. That means something to us when we are in the hands of a close personal, caring, all-powerful God that he calls us sons. He calls us daughters. He says, I love you. I love you. And when we are facing spiritual and existential and physical and psychological and relational crises, we know that God is with us. We know that God goes before us. And we know that we step into those things with a Father who loves us. God has delivered us, so God will. God will be with us. And lastly, God will provide for us. Look at verses 31 through 35 of Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, give us everything that we need? God has met our greatest need in Jesus Christ. So we can trust him to meet every other need that we have in our lives. If God was willing to go to that extent, to give up his own son so that we could become sons and daughters. It's nothing for God to provide us with what we need in the here and in the now. And that's what we, we will see as we continue to go on through the book of Exodus, is that as God is shaping and forming his people into what he desires them to be, that God still has to provide for their basic needs. He still has to give them water when they're thirsty out in the desert. He still has to provide food when they can't find anything to eat. He still has to protect them from the enemies that they face. This is what God signed up for. This is the responsibility of a father. I know what my responsibility is to my kids. I knew that getting into this. If I didn't want to provide for my kids, if I didn't want to have to meet their needs, I wouldn't have had kids. But God says, I will provide for you. I will give you all things because you are mine. You are mine. You are my children, and I love you. And we would expect that this kind of relationship that God's people had to him, his care for them, his providence, in their lives would draw them closer to him, right? That they would respond after all that they had experienced in love and in gratitude and in service and in worship, but that's not what happens. That's not what happens. They continue to struggle against that love. They continue to struggle against the life that he desires for them, despite what they see God do for them, despite seeing God's holiness and his power with their own eyes, they prefer a different kind of slavery, a life of unrestricted, autonomous freedom apart from God. They had come out of slavery. They were free. But what we see is they just go right back into a different kind. A different kind. Because it's not the life that God intended for them to live. And that's what we must examine in our own lives this morning. That's what we must come to terms with right here, right now. Do we just say and identify that we're a Christian? That we're a follower of Jesus? But in reality looking at our lives, we just kind of do what we want. We're making our own life. We're making our own way. We're defining what is good, what is good for me, what is good for my life. But that's not what God intends. That's not why he brought us out of slavery to sin and death. He brought us out of slavery to sin and to death. So that we could move into a different kind of life. A life with him under his rule, which is true happiness and true goodness. Freedom in God doesn't come about by obeying more rules. It comes about by internalizing and coming to grips more and more. With the gospel, with God's love for us, Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf, and the fact that we were made for him. And that is why every single week we celebrate communion. Because that word communion means that we are one with God through Jesus Christ that our life is different, that the day that we put our faith in Jesus was a new beginning for us, that we were brought out of slavery and into life, life with God under his gracious rule. And I want to invite you this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, as you come and take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, that you would do so acknowledging that you are his that you were bought through blood, that you are God's child and that he loves you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you have questions about this, we would love to talk to you. This isn't magic. This doesn't just get you in good with God. Just like these things that God told his people to do, to memorialize, to remember over and over again, that's what we're doing as well. This identifies something that is true about us and we desire that to be true. God desires that to be true about you as well and we would love to talk with you about that. You can write that down on your Connect card. You can talk to me after the service. Would you pray with me and let's prepare our hearts to move into this time of identifying with Jesus through his death on our behalf so that we can have life. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that for those of us who have been called to be sons and daughters of you, that you lavish that love out on us that you pour it out and you keep pouring and pouring and pouring it out. God, I pray that that would draw us closer to you in surrender to you because you, we know that we have not been called to live a life of slavery to fear, but a life free of condemnation because we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.